we are coming to a part of the dependent arising which is the most significant but also most difficult to understand um, not from a standpoint of the words themselves because obviously I try to use the simplest language available but from a standpoint of relating that to oneself and the whole thing only matters if one relates it to oneself if we don't relate this to ourselves it's all just um, unnecessary verbiage but when we relate it to ourselves it makes a lot of difference and this is the most difficult one to relate to ourselves and because of that of course also the most significant so first I'm going to read the uh, sutta itself which doesn't contain all that much and then uh, I'll go into the um, details of it and I'll read more than one paragraph this time because we have already um, had several of them and we need two of them to relate to Ananda, if one is asked, is feeling due to a specific condition, one should say it is. If one is asked through what condition is there feeling, one should say with contact as condition there is feeling. Now we have already discussed that because we know already that every sense contact, including thought, creates feeling. And I have already said that it's very important to actually explains that within oneself and there are many possibilities to do that particularly also if you can experience for instance in loving kindness if you have thought a kind thought and then a feeling of warmth and love arises so you've thought something and then you've had a feeling it's actually as simple as that and it applies to every thought and every sense contact and we have already um, had a very detailed explanation on that but I'm again urging you to become aware what is the condition the cause for feeling where does it come from if you think of somebody that you really dislike you get a feeling of hatefulness you get a feeling of rejection you get a feeling of maybe even a physical feeling very often we have sensation and emotion and if you do become aware of sensation it can help also not to have to act out that emotion so the all of these things are happening all the time so if there is a thought process which uh, creates a kind of irritation it may even be felt in the stomach or somewhere else and then the knowledge that this is irritation arises wherever we go our senses are always engaged and therefore our feelings are always engaged and it's very important to become aware of that um, process and then we know that without the contact feeling doesn't arise but we're constantly making contact 
And it's a very important aspect. Ananda, if one is asked, is contact due to a specific condition? One should say it is. And if one is asked through what condition is there contact, one should say, with mentality, materiality as condition, there is contact. Now that we haven't discussed yet. So we'll discuss the mentality, materiality at this point. Now mentality, materiality is a translation, and to my mind a bit of a cumbersome one, of Namarupa, which means nothing other than mind and body. Now, Nama, the Pali word Nama, has as a literal translation that which bends towards. So the mind bends towards something and names it. So the word Nama is actually the Nama, and that's the mind doing that, and Rupa is the body. So here it's translated as mentality and materiality, and most likely the translator has done that to show that it isn't that mentality is not just the thought process but all four of the mental aggregates. He doesn't say that he's done it because of that but I feel fairly sure that that's his reason for it. But otherwise it's a bit of a cumbersome word to use. Um, He doesn't mind using cumbersome words. (laughs) So we have the four aspects of mind, which is the sense contact or the sense consciousness, feeling, perception, and mental formation. All those are mentality. And materiality are again and again described by the Buddha as the four elements. And materiality, of course, is our body. And because we are concerned with ourselves, that's what we are looking at. But materiality wherever we look, it doesn't matter what we look at, it's always the four elements, in different proportions. But the four elements are wherever there is anything that is material. So, particularly with us, that's important. All of these things that they are being said and which I have suggested to you to use for contemplation are leading towards seeing oneself First of all, in parts, and secondly, objectively, and not so subjectively, always thinking me and mine. Every one of these is is geared in that direction. Now, mentality and materiality as a condition for contact. Well, if we don't have mind and body, obviously we can't make contact. So within our mind and body are embedded, first of all, the physical senses which are making contact and within the mentality we have the consciousness embedded. The consciousness which is the one that arises from the contact between the sense base and the sense object. The eye and that what I see They make contact, and so the sense consciousness arises. If we don't take ourselves apart in bits and pieces, we're always going to continue thinking of ourselves as one whole. This is me. 
And as we think of that in that way, we'd like to make that whole perfect. We'll never manage. We also will never make it permanent. So we can't do anything for permanency. We can't do anything about making it perfect. And we will also be completely limited by that idea of this is something which has a particular importance or particular designation. So all these, all of these things are to take us apart and are to show us objectively who we are. Now we have already mentioned those two, I have already mentioned those two aspects, designation and impingement. The mind, when it makes contact, makes a designation. It tells what it is. And impingement is what happens to the senses. Whatever is out there impinges on the senses. So the mentality, our mind and body, are both needed in order to have this happen. We have to have the senses where things impinge upon. The same with our mind things impinge upon it and we also have to have the mind that goes out and describes, tells what it is. So if we only had the one, we wouldn't have the physical senses. If we only had the body with the physical senses and no mind, nothing would happen. It would be a totally useless business. So the two have to be connected. But we also have to know that these two have different functions, but they're very much interconnected. And this is an important aspect for the next step, that they are necessary, both of these. And that's also interesting because we will find later, as we come to it, that this also plays a part in this rebirth that happens in this samsara progression. Then the Buddha also explains that each of the aggregates of the mind, also the body, but we have to, we are concerned with the mind at this moment, has particular qualities and traits. And it also has signs. Now the qualities and traits that he talks about for each of the mental aggregates means that the perception aggregate doesn't feel the feeling aggregate doesn't perceive, the mental formation aggregate doesn't have the sense consciousness, they all each have their own um, abode, they all have each have their own function. This is also important, although it's obvious, isn't it? Nobody ever thinks of it. It's also important to see that we consist of these bits and pieces and that there isn't a whole conglomeration all acting at once, although it appears to be. Everything seems to be happening at once. But as I already told you, and as you have already done, you have seen the progression of those four. And you can see that each one has its own function, quality, own trait. And when he talks about the signs, it has its own goal the perception aggregate has the goal of labeling the mental formation aggregate has the goal of reacting 
They're all there for something. Their sense consciousness, aggregate, has the goal of impinging on the senses so that we can actually see. All these things have their own specialty, so to say. Nothing can take over from another. We cannot substitute. It's all happening. And because if we see ourselves like that, maybe it will help us to see ourselves as a phenomena and not as a me. The more we see ourselves as a phenomena, the less troubles we have, the less worries we have, the less uh, um, personal ideas will be there how to make make it work for us because it's just happening and all four do their job as long as they exist and they do a specific job and that's all. They interact only as cause and condition. Is that clear? Okay. Somebody's nodding their head, so I assume it's clear. (laughs) Now, there's another uh, aspect of them. Quality, trait, sign, and then indicator. Indicator means that each of these aggregates relates to a different aspect of the world. Now, we have that idea that we are relating as a total thing here to the world. And uh, whatever the world happens to be at this time, people or food or traffic or scenery or whatever it is or whatever we concocted up in the mind what we're thinking about. But that's not so. We are not relating to the world as a whole at all. The uh, sense consciousness relates to the world with having the input which is either the hearing or the seeing or the tasting or the smelling, whatever it is. And then the feeling aggregate relates to the world with feeling and perception with giving it a name and mental formation with reacting. So the relationship to the world of each one of these aggregates, and I'm leaving the body out on purpose because it goes too far. We have to really deal with the mind. And the next step is also only dealing with mind. So when we see that each one of these relates to a particular aspect of the world, and if we can see that when we have that progression of the four, it's very interesting to experience that. What could be more interesting than to experience oneself as one really is and not as one has concocted oneself to be? Because that concoction that we've made up has never been satisfying. Either we were too much this or too much that, or too little this or too little that. Whatever it is, there's always been something that wasn't quite satisfying. Whatever we're concerned with, too rich, too poor, too too ugly, too dumb, uh, too intelligent, not uh, concerned, too much concerned, there's always something in our concoction about our identification. But if we can take those four mental aggregates and not only become aware of their progression, which you know already, sense consciousness, feeling, perception, mental formation, but also see them as relating to the world in their own way and having a specialty. Each one has a special program and none can substitute for another. It makes it even more objective. It's most fascinating to see that. It completely 
um, removes, if one really feels it and practices it, completely removes any doubt that the Buddha was right when he said there wasn't anybody there. Because it just isn't possible to have anybody there. Because if I was there and could really do something about it, maybe I don't like this feeling aggregate that's happening. So maybe I could leave it out. I can't. It's happening. Because the feeling aggregate exists and so it works. And it works as an indicator of whatever has happened through the sense consciousness. Now this is mentality and materiality as they are as mind and body working in their bits and pieces. Now we have already talked about taking the body apart, seeing all its parts, and thereby getting away from this idea that there's really somebody there. There's just parts that are put together and that are functioning to a certain extent, never quite perfectly, but often to the extent where they don't give too much trouble and then we're quite satisfied with them. When they start giving trouble, of course, then we don't like that at all. But the body as such is needed for the, not only for the senses, but also for the mentality, because the mind has to be the clearinghouse for the sense input. And as a clearinghouse, for the sense input, the two always have to be together, the mind and the body. Now, this is an interesting aspect when we come to the explanation of rebirth. But now I will come to the next step. This isn't very difficult. It's just, this is easy. But now comes the hard part. <laughs> so we know now that mentality and materiality are the conditions for our contacts, right? So now, Ananda, if one is asked, is mentality, materiality due to a specific condition? One should say it is. If one is asked, through what condition is there mentality and materiality, one should say, with consciousness as condition, there is mentality, materiality. And then comes the next one. And Ananda, if one is asked, is consciousness due to a specific condition, one should say it is. And if one is asked, through what condition is there consciousness, one should say, with mentality, materiality as condition, there is consciousness. So now we have come to the point where the whole thing turns back on itself. And this is one of the most significant ways of the Buddha's enlightenment experience. Because this dependent arising is what he saw as his enlightenment and he worded it in the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path, which I will eventually probably also uh, explain because very important and we can do that at the end um, when this is finished. But the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path are another way of stating dependent arising. They are, the Four Noble Truths are, so to say, like a telegram style of dependent arising. And this particular, this last statement, uh, together with the one before that, gives a totally different aspect to what we think we are. Now, the first thing that we can look at, and this is only important for those who have already a knowledge of the Buddha's teaching, that this particular discourse on dependent arising is different 
from all other discourses on dependent arising. Usually, what the Buddha says that with that from contact as condition, there are the sense spaces. And the sense basis as condition, there's mentality and materiality. And with mentality as condition and materiality as condition, there's rebirth consciousness. Rebirth consciousness being the condition for that. And from rebirth consciousness, the condition is ignorance. But he leaves all that out here. He doesn't give that at all. This is what I uh, talked about at the beginning, which is depicted on that picture in the back. But here he goes right to the final and ultimate realization if we can realize it. So, therefore, it's a little more complicated. Now, consciousness in Pali is vinyana, and it means different things. And here in English it also doesn't mean different things. So we have to make clear at first what it means. In the first instance, it's that which we have already talked about, the sense consciousness. We know that already, right? We have the sense base and the sense object, and when they make contact, we get sense consciousness, which in this case is seeing. It's not talking about this here. That's already done with. That's already finished. That, that progression has been, has been mentioned. He's talking about mind consciousness. Now, obviously, the, as I said, mind is used as a sixth sense. In that way we can say sense consciousness. But we don't want to dis be confused. So we're not talking about the five senses. We're talking here about mind consciousness. And mind consciousness is the condition for mentality and materiality and mentality and materiality the condition for mind consciousness. So, first of all he says that consciousness is a fourfold condition. The first aspect of this mind consciousness is the rebirth consciousness. And that is when it arises together at conception. And the two cannot arise separately. There cannot be a conception of a new being without consciousness. There cannot be consciousness of a new being without the physical arising. They have to come together. And then, of course, sometimes it doesn't happen because one of them is lacking. There can only be a new being if the two come together. So that's one way that consciousness is needed. Then the consciousness has to go through the whole gestation period. If that is lost, the um, baby is lost. There's no being then it is necessary at the new person's emerging from the womb. There has to be consciousness there, otherwise no being, corpse. And then we need mind consciousness all through life. So we have, it's a fourfold condition. Without that, there's no being. So that's the first thing he explains about consciousness. Now, as we have mind consciousness all through life, obviously we have to have the body with it. I have to already, I have already explained that. But consciousness in the mind, which is that which knows, is the one we most likely refer to as me. 
again and again that is being done. And there's a part here from another discourse where the Buddha says this. Because the uninstructed worldling can become disenchanted with this body. And one assumes that one has become disenchanted with the idea that this is really me. He can become dispassionate towards it and liberated from it. But that which is called mind, mentation and consciousness, mentation is ideas, thinking, and consciousness, with that he cannot become disenchanted. He cannot become dispassionate towards it and liberated from it. For what reason? Because for a long time, because the uninstructed worldling has been attached to this, appropriated it, and misapprehended it thus. This is mine, this I am, this is myself. So here the Buddha comes right down to this final, um, under, that final misunderstanding under which every worldling operates. And he says the uninstructed one. Well, we cannot say that we are uninstructed. That is something we can't say about ourselves. We can say that we might be um, not understanding. We might even say we are not listening. But we can't say we are uninstructed. So... Um, but we can say worldly, yes. The one who knows, the knower, that must be me. And the question over and over arises, who is this that is knowing this? And who is the one that's going to get out of all this misery? Or who is the one that can step out between feeling and craving? Or who is the one that... All these questions, of course, the Buddha negates completely. He says these are totally wrongly put questions. But... They are put because of the idea that we have in the mind that that one who knows, who is conscious, must be me. That's obviously the ultimate me. We are quite aware of the fact that this body is going to die. But we have a suspicion, a hope, an idea, a sort of a kind of feeling even, that that, what knows, doesn't die. And you know, the funny thing about that is, we're quite right. It doesn't. But it still isn't me. So I'll explain that, because this is a very important point, and it's difficult to latch on to beyond logic. Consciousness, which we have in the mind, our conscious mind seems to be an uninterrupted process. It just keeps going. But that's not the uh, real fact. They are cognitive moments. But the moments are so quickly in succession that they appear to be a whole series which never stops. It's constant. We have the feeling of consciousness is consciousness and it's always there, unless we fall asleep or become unconscious. These are the two possibilities we allow. But if we become very mindful, we can become aware of the fact that even the mind consciousness has the same quality as everything else in the universe, namely movement, like that. Constant movement. But it is so fast and it is so uh, continuous that that particular impermanence of arising and ceasing does not come to our awareness. 
We don't know that. We can, if we are very, very concentrated, very concentrated, and then watch the concentration, become a, use that as our focus of attention, we can see that it goes like that. And um, then as we become aware of that, when we can refer to this, then we know that this is the f- actually a fact. At this point in time, let's use it as um, a given that since everything in the universe is impermanent, which does not mean that it's constantly um, disappearing, it just means that it's arising and ceasing constantly. We must include consciousness in that also. So we can take that uh, at the moment uh, as a given uh, fact without being able to verify it until we become very concentrated and put our mind on that and really look at it. And then we see blips, like little blips all the time. So this is the first thing. It's a series of acts of cognition. That's the description of the Buddha for consciousness. Now, when this Noah, this consciousness, is there and the body breaks up, Obviously, the body disappears. But the consciousness, we were told, needs mentality and materiality. It needs both. So if this body is dead, it's finished, how does consciousness remain so that we can get reborn? Well, the answer to that the Buddha has given in other discourses, namely that we have also the ability to have and we have the possibility for having subtle bodies, those that we don't see in the same earth element as we see it now. And these subtle bodies, they are what carry on the consciousness. And the consciousness contains the karma. And as it contains the karma, it is the seed for new life because it also contains the craving to be and that it gets directed by its own impetus and because it gets directed by its own impetus this consciousness where it is going to go it will eventually wind up in the womb because it wants to be and then it winds up with Um, very um, visible, eventually visible body and then we have a being again so the consciousness that we think is me and that we hope won't die really doesn't die it does keep going and it keeps going in this continual round of being always the same happening as where the consciousness which contains the karma, which contains the craving, comes back in the womb, gets to be a a little baby, has to learn everything all over again, has to learn to 
to walk and to talk and to eat and to go to the toilet. Then has to go through all the misery of the school and the teenage years and all the misery of, of uh, uh, falling in love and falling out of love and all the rest of it. And then as it finally has all these miseries behind it, then it thinks, now I'm fine, and then the whole thing starts all over again. And as it, as it goes on and on and on, this consciousness is me, and as it goes on and on as me, it comes, keeps coming back. It falls back on itself. This consciousness, which is the mentality together with the aggregates, falls back on itself into the materiality, into the body. In other words, it can never be something which is ethereal or eternal or, um, well, it often has been described as the higher self or the soul or it gets described, uh, described as the universal self or it gets, uh, particularly if we already got as far as looking at our bodies and saying, no, no, that can't be me. Right? And then we have already looked at our sense contacts and we say, well, no, that's not me either because sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. And feeling, well, maybe not. Maybe that's not me either. Or maybe we have a little doubt about it. Maybe we haven't quite agreed to it yet, but maybe we have a little doubt that feeling is me. But consciousness, well, that's got to be me. So if that's me, it's got to be something nice. I wouldn't like it to be something that isn't nice since it's obviously me. And seeing now that I'm going to keep it going because it's going to continue, it doesn't die, isn't that nice? I don't even need a, um, a monument or anything. I just keep going. Isn't that wonderful? So I have an eternalist attitude towards it. And obviously it must be the soul which is going to come back and to have all these other nice experiences. But it's not an eternalist view at all because the consciousness which we have now changes from moment to moment. One time it's connected to seeing, another time connected to hearing, another time connected to thinking, another time connected to tasting, another time connected to uh, fantasizing. It's always changing from moment to moment. It's not eternal. It's not uh, everlasting. It just is a series of acts of cognition. And you can experience that yourself. Consciousness, it's not a stream that's always there. Sometimes it's seeing, sometimes it's hearing, sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. And with that, that eternalist view is also seen to be uh, nothing but a fantasy. It's a hope and a prayer. I'm so important, I'm so nice, why do I disappear? I don't. I've never been here. And this is the one thing that most people can never understand. We don't disappear. We've never come. This is a series of acts of cognition. That's all. Period. Finished. That's all there is. And that's called consciousness, if we speak English. But we call it me. And then we even go as far as calling it soul. Or if we don't like that word because we've heard that Buddhists don't use that, so we don't want to be, uh, you know, sort of against that, all that. So we call it higher self or universal self. Particularly if we have already um, found that it has a lot of appendages, this, this consciousness, that there's all this other stuff around it, like the body and all the senses. So we kind of separate all that and leave that standing as the last resort.
that is the one that we're going to keep. Then we can call it something fancy because it doesn't have all this. It doesn't act in any way that is uh, objectionable. So we can call it something nice. And then we have all sorts of ideas what we can find that, what we can call that. But in this particular sutta, the most important aspect that the Buddha is talking about, I mean, all the other things were important too, they were leading up to this, is that the condition for consciousness is this mentality and materiality. And this mentality and materiality is always connected to not only the senses, but also to the difficulties of the body and the difficulties of all the four mental aggregates. So consciousness is never anything that is um, so desirable that we would like to own it. But when we say it's a soul, we try to own it. It's mine. And the ownership of this consciousness is connected to our idea that it is really separate. It's my consciousness. Now that gets totally diffused and usually eliminated in the sixth jhana, which is called the base of infinite consciousness. And when we realize in that jhana that there is an infinite consciousness and that there is no personal consciousness, all this becomes much easier. And that's why it's so important to be able to have enough concentration so that one can actually go along this pathway of the jhanas because it makes the personal experience of this a fact. Whereas what I'm telling you right now, although it's interesting and you can check it up on yourself, the necessity to do that, and not only the necessity but the ability to do that, is difficult and the necessity is tedious. But sixth jhana, no problem infinity of consciousness who's there nobody now that doesn't mean enlightenment don't misunderstand that it just means one of the steps where one knows but then of course again as we come back out of these jhanas again there's that feeling I was in the sixth jhana I who was this person that was there while we were there there was nobody there then all of a sudden coming down and recalling it all and maybe telling about it, saying, well, that was me being there. So we need both. We need the personal experience of this, but we also need the explanation and then the checking up on that explanation. So when we have this um, explanation here, we can see that consciousness and mentality and materiality support each other and they feed each other. And the consciousness is the ground of existence. It's what existence comes from. But it has to relate to mind and body. It isn't by itself. And this is the most interesting aspect. If we can see that it doesn't have, can't be by itself, we can also see that universal consciousness cannot be Nibbana. Because universal consciousness also needs something that it can act in. And so it can act in the universality of space. 
It has the ground there, its ground of being, which is the fifth jhana. But it cannot be separate. The Buddha said the consciousness is never separate. It always has something that it relates to. Otherwise, it cannot function. So when we see that, that our consciousness functions in relationship to all the other things that happened within us, we can see that it is not somebody there. And this is the most important aspect, to find out for oneself, is there somebody? Who is somebody that we think is there that is having the conscious awareness of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling? Buddha said, even the question is wrong. There's a condition for it. There's mentality and materiality so that there is a knowing of all that but that's the condition for it. There isn't. The question of that there is somebody there cannot um, even be entertained as a question. He says that the consciousness which we have is the forerunner of mentality and materiality, but the forerunner not in time, but as arising, arising where they have actually mutual support system. So what there is said, what is translated here is that the heart base is the condition for consciousness. Now the word heart base, heart, in Pali is the same as mind. So it's called chitta, and it's either, it's heart or mind. So the base, the mind base, if you will, is the condition for consciousness. And this has connaissance, which means they arise, it rises together with the body and the mentality. So consciousness cannot exist without the base of the mind. And as they arise together, they have a, they're mutually supportive, and their presence is needed so that neither one disappears. So they have those conditions. That means that they are coming together and support each other and their presence is needed, otherwise one would disappear. If they are not both there, they would disappear. And when we see that, as a, as an, um, if we take that as an understanding of who we are, we can check when we have the conscious awareness of what's going on in, within us, feeling or seeing or anything like that. We see that there has to be a support for the consciousness. Something is happening. Even in universal consciousness, there is a support system, namely universality. Not only that, but the support system is the mind base which is concentrated. We can never have one thing alone. We always have a condition, a cause, and then the arising of the effect. And this is what the Buddha is trying to point out to us that without all the different aspects of us existing, nothing would exist. If we didn't have the mind, the body would be a vegetable. If we didn't have the body, we wouldn't have the senses. And if we don't have the senses, the consciousness wouldn't be working in its proper fashion. So with that condition and cause, Coming together, we have a human being. 
and there's no reason in the world to call it me. This is only a way of speaking. Now, because we have been calling it me, and because we actually not only call it that way, but we think it me, we also feel it me. And because we feel it me, and because we are doing everything in our lives for this me, with a few exceptions when we buy birthday present for somebody else, but otherwise we do everything for this me, we don't really want to be disturbed from this pathway. That's what we're doing. However, since Dukkha is our best teacher, if there is enough Dukkha in all this me thing, we will eventually come to the conclusion that there must be a way to get out of that. Now, we, the me cannot get out of me. The I cannot see the I. It's not possible. We've got to see it differently. We've got to inquire into cause and condition. When we inquire into cause and condition, as the Buddha has done here, and now there are a few other words he says, which might be helpful to get this a little more straight. He says, He says, when I asked myself, what is the condition for consciousness, the answer came, because through methodical attention I comprehended with wisdom, when there is mentality, materiality, consciousness comes to be. With mentality, materiality as condition, there is consciousness. So again, he reaffirms that same statement, and then he says, Apart from conditions, there is no origination of consciousness. Consciousness turns back from mentality and materiality. It turns back on itself. It goes back to mentality and materiality, to mind and body. Consciousness must have mind and body in order to be there. And as it must have that, it doesn't go beyond into the blue yonder and become something wonderfully um, and uh, desirable. It never is that, because we only make it that because we think it's mine. The most difficult part of this to understand is the part about the remaining of the consciousness which does not die at the time of death and people who have had near-death experiences know that because otherwise they couldn't have a near-death experience if there isn't any consciousness now the near-death experience is usually that the body is considered to be dead by the people who should know these things um, but because the consciousness is not ready to take off it goes back into this body which still has apparently a spark of life in it and so then we've got the being back but at the time when the consciousness leaves the body it's a corpse and so the people that are standing there the doctors and so forth think the person is dead but actually because the consciousness isn't taking off it comes back and it stays alive so consciousness those people do know that consciousness goes on and this consciousness that goes on is 
the one that then goes, comes into the next body as it becomes a conception comes about. Now, when we see that quite clearly and make ourselves that really an act of cognition, it does seem to be a waste of time to do this over and over and over. And we've done it so many times already. What is there to really achieve next time? Unfortunately, nobody gets born with a little piece of paper in their hand which uh, delineates all the mistakes one has made last time and all the ways one could uh, really improve on that this time. Nobody. We've got to go through the whole mess again, over and over. And this is an interesting aspect because consciousness is the seed. The seed which then sprouts, just like in a tree, there's a seed and it gets into a tree. So consciousness is the seed which brings about this whole uh, being. So that's another way that the Buddha described uh, consciousness as a seed. And then he says at the end, he gives another sentence which may or may not be helpful to uh, understand. It is to this extent that one, one can be born, age and die, pass away and re-arise, to this extent that the round, the round of rebirth, turns for describing this state of being, that is, when there is mentality, materiality, together with consciousness. And he also explains that there is nothing such as a self or an outside agent or a creator of any sort, that makes that happen. It's a continual round which has no beginning but can have an end. If we see the um, truth of this and then experience it, we can make an end to it. We don't have to have the consciousness which is freed from the body, which gets a subtle body, which is um, explained in somewhat in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. We don't have to have that consciousness crave to come back. It's not necessary. If we have seen the truth of this, we can stop that craving um, before or even in the consciousness that has a subtle body or in the consciousness even in this body and no longer crave for this being to be there. But it does not mean that we want to get out. It just means that we've seen that nothing contains the me. Nothing. It's all a continual cause and condition process which arises and passes away in an act of cognition in the consciousness. This is the one, this consciousness thing, the one, the knower, the one that is most often, practically always, the one that we stumble over. Okay, so we're not the body, we're not the feeling, we're not the senses, but there must be somebody there that knows that. And then the question comes, and who is it? And this actually, I was looking for it, it's in here too, somebody asked this of the Buddha, who is it? And the Buddha says, well, don't ask that. Here's a description. The Buddha said, with the six sense bases as condition, contact comes to be. Venerable Sir, who makes contact? This uh, 
disciple asked him. Not a proper question. I do not say one makes contact. If I should say one makes contact, it would be proper to ask who makes contact. But I do not say this. Since I do not say this, a proper question to ask me is this. Through what condition does contact come to be? To this, the proper answer is, with the six sense basis as condition, contact comes to be. With contact as condition, feeling comes to be. Venerable Sir, who feels? And he goes on and on and on. And uh, so um, we're in good, good company. Huh? <laughs> so the Buddha gives the same answer again. Huh? So it goes on all the way down the line. Because we have this idea that there is somebody there. Now, I wonder if this is all totally clear. <laughs> if we have questions, this is the time to ask them. Yes. Um, you've explained uh, conception. What happens with the miscarriage? Okay. Yes. Either Doesn't one. Conception in something went wrong? Mm hmm. Sure. Of course. Does that mean that the body wasn't ready for it? Or? Either the body or the consciousness. Consciousness disappeared, and so the body disappeared. <coughs> quite possible. Yeah. The, the difficulty um, with losing this knower when we're uh, an ordinary exchange, not meditating. Mm-hmm. The familiarity with this knower, this personality we mentioned yesterday, mm-hmm. it's come so 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 long. It seems it's almost like cell division, the cell memory. You know, it's, it's there when you hit this plateau. In other words, you said you you almost lose that consciousness. You lose consciousness in this jump. No. Well, don't say that, please. You don't lose consciousness in the sixth jhana. That would be dreadful. No, Some of us would be lying down here then, and you know, <laughs> unconscious. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, we can see that truth. There's no question in my mind. But you have to really lose it. Yes, okay. So what you're saying, if I understand you right, is that you agree with it on theory and in logic, but you can't feel it. Is that what you're saying? I, uh, I can feel it. Obviously, it's not uh, wrenching enough to tear it apart. That's right, exactly. So in the first step, and this is how the Buddha taught, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't have these discourses. The first step is the information, right? The second step is to uh, accept that information and say, yes, okay, that's fine. And the third step is to practice, to actually have that intent to let go of the self-illusion and be that which is nothing but a phenomena 
nothing, a phenomena which is nothing, of no significance, which doesn't have a personality, which has nothing. That, that willingness to be that becomes then the determination to do that. And as one does that, there are the path moments, which I have described yesterday, one of them. And as one has the path moments, eventually it's wrenching. It wrenches the worldling from his worldly view and brings him to the lineage of the noble ones. But it's got to be done. So this is very good. The information first, that's what you that's all one can impart, right? One can only impart information. There's nothing else to impart. Uh, better or worse, that's it. And then the actual acceptance of this, that's so. And then the willingness to do it. I don't have to remain this particular personality. I'm willing to give it up because I've seen the um, benefit of it. Not only that it's true, but the benefit of not having a me sit in there. And then one's got to do it. And that may take a little time. (laughs) 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 But you know, that's also karmic. Some people... With the karmic condition, the length of time it takes from the moment that one has accepted this truth to the moment that one can actually uh, manifest it in oneself. It's a karmic condition. But without the acceptance, which you have already voiced, one can't do anything. And the acceptance is also based on the fact that there's a karmic condition in one's mind, that one can accept such a thing because not everybody can accept that. I mean, there's millions, uh, billions of people out there who would say, what rubbish? Who needs to know about non-self? All I'm interested in is how to get the self in order, never mind the non-self. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Could you say a little more about the subtle bodies? Mm-hmm. Uh, I see methods of of, of experiencing the other parts of this that you've talked about, of where to put my mind when it's concentrated. But for the subtle body, it's no. too subtle. Yes. <laughs> no, it's too far removed from this moment. It's, uh, it's an, uh, the after-death experience. I was trying to, trying to make it clear that consciousness, because it carries on and changes into rebirth consciousness, or becomes rebirth, doesn't change, it becomes rebirth consciousness, obviously has to have some carrier, because it can't stand on its own. That's what the Buddha said, it's got to be carried. And before it gets into this new body, which is a new baby, before it can be that and arise together with that, it has to be carried. So it's carried by a subtle body. And this subtle body whatever. So it's not it's not contactable as long as we have a physical body. It's just something that has to be accepted on faith. Yes. So you get it like you can see all that stuff. Uh, not even on faith. No, no have to accept it at all. What you need to think is just that the aspect of consciousness which we are dealing with here uh, needs to be seen in this circular progression. So how does it keep going? And that is um, yeah, well, so what I said before, people with a near-death experience, of which there are books which are quite interesting, actually, they, they realize they are meeting people 
Well, I mean, how do you meet people when there's only consciousness? So obviously there are subtle bodies. They're meeting somebody, they're meeting this wonderful person that's going to be so loving to them and all these stories that, I read, uh, that I've read about. So there is a subtle body there. And whatever that subtle body is, it doesn't really concern our practice right now. This is only the explanation how the round keeps going. That's all. It isn't a p- necessary for the practice. Okay? Right. Yes. That's a different tradition, and as I usually say, I have enough trouble understanding this one, never mind another one. You have to, you have to ask Tibetan Buddhists. I don't know where they get it from, I have no idea. This is not Tibetan Buddhism, this is Theravadan. Theravadan means the teaching of the elders based on the Pali Canon, which bases itself on the, on the discourses of the Buddha. So whatever they have, I can't explain. I won't even try, because I really don't know. But I'm sure you'll find somebody to explain it to you. Okay? Anything else? Yes? Could you digress a minute to... uh, You were talking last night about karma and the creation of karma. Um, Could you talk a little bit about levels of karmic deeds a thought can't be as bad as an action that's right that's quite right um, the thought is the most important one because it's a generator it's the one that generates it all for instance if you um, dislike somebody right and you think well if that person ever comes into my house again I'm actually going to murder him Well, it's a very nasty thought, but what else happens? Nothing, right? It's just gone. So it's a very negative thought, it's negative karma, but nothing really terrible yet. So then that person does come. And then you say that to him. You say, if you ever come near me again, I'm going to murder you. So now, first of all, if that person tells that to other people, you've lost your good reputation. Secondly, you've made an enemy. And you've made a statement which makes it more solid. So it's stronger karma. And then, by golly, that person does appear and you actually do murder that person. Well, you wind up in jail, of course. Right? It's very bad karma. So it's very di- uh, much stronger. The action is much stronger. The speech is in the middle. And the uh, thought is the weakest. But it's the most important one. Because if you never had thought this, you would never have done it. And the other way around, too, of course. When we think something nice, that's good karma. But it doesn't really carry a great deal of result until we do it. So it certainly has the value system of the three steps. And those are our three doors. (coughs) Thought, speech, and action. These are the three doors that we can come with. Anything else? everything perfectly clear, how consciousness, mentality, materiality. So now, 
maybe I will say this. It is a very important aspect to investigate this. Now, we can't really investigate that on any other level except on the mind level. Try to think about it in a contemplative way. Is there anybody sitting within this knower? Because the knower knows all sorts of different things all the time. Knows this and that. Sometimes doesn't know anything. Sometimes knows so many things in so quick succession. Is that really me? Why do I think it's me? This would be the investigation into that me, apparent me, in our consciousness. Because we can use this as a synonym. We can say the consciousness is the knower. This would be quite uh, acceptable. So check that out too and see. And then see, can the consciousness, the knower, actually know without having the senses? <coughs> is it possible to have this without the body? Is it possible to have this body without the knower? How does this all come together? Where does this me sit? Because you may already have agreed to the fact that the body isn't me. And yet, one still thinks there is somebody that's me. So check the knower out. And this will give a much more personal um, relationship to this part of the, uh, of the discourse of the Sutta. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Let compassion arise in your heart for your own dukkha, for anything that you may be experiencing now or in the past which is not totally satisfactory, whether it's in the body or in the emotions. See it as dukkha and then have compassion for yourself. Not suffering from it, but compassion. Dukkha is. And filling yourself with compassion means acceptance. Caring. Embracing. feeling concerned but not 
depressed by it. Have that acceptance and concern and care in your heart for yourself. And now fill the person nearest you with compassion for his or her dukkha. Either you know about the dukkha or you can surmise it. There is no living being without it. Fill him or her with a compassionate feeling of care and concern. And now fill everyone here with compassion for the difficulties everyone has. Let your loving care and concern fill everyone from head to toe. Now think of your parents and fill them with your compassion for the dukkha that you either know about or can imagine. Acceptance and loving care and concern. Think of those people who are near and dear to you. 
know their dukkha. Fill them with your compassion. Embrace them with your loving concern. Think of all your good friends and remember any dukkha that you know about or that you can imagine and fill them with compassion, acceptance, caring. giving your heart so they can feel you're concerned about them. Think of anyone whom you know who is particularly unhappy or having difficulties and let your heart full of compassion reach out to that person, filling him or her with care and concern, embracing him or her, showing your love and compassion. Think of anyone whom you don't like and remember that person's dukkha 
and then let your heart full of compassion reach out to that person. And now think of all those people whose lives are far more difficult than ours. They may be in prison, in hospitals, in refugee camps, without homes, crippled, blind, without food or shelter, without friends, Think of people all over the world that may have such difficult lives. Fill your heart with love and compassion and reach out with it to all these people. Letting them know and letting them feel that you are friends, that you are together. That you are embracing them with your heartfelt compassion. that you realize their difficulty and feel with them and want to help. and put your attention back on yourself. Recognize the dukkha within you that's inherent in existence, but see it not as your own personal difficulty, but just as part of existence. Have compassion for yourself, but no suffering.
fill yourself with compassion from head to toe. A feeling of care and concern and understanding and embrace yourself with loving acceptance. May all beings have compassion for each other. <laughs> 